Well, good morning, CPC, those, the few of us who are speckled out in the and to everyone there on Zoom and uh, YouTube, welcome to, to this space, welcome to this worship, and we want to um, thank you for being here. I'll begin with this story. Walter Kaiser tells of the funeral service of King Louis XIV. And King Louis before his death requested that at his service in the cathedral of North Carolina, all darkened, except the one candle on his casket at the front. But when the court preacher whose name was Massillon got up to give the funeral sermon, he walked over to the casket, snuffed out the light, and began with these words. Only God is great. Only God is great. Comes with the mic. So let's. Let's pray. Oh, Father, prepare my heart. Prepare our hearts, O oh Lord. There are many, many distractions. This feels a bit uncommon, though we have done this before. There's a beauty, O oh Lord, and an energy whenever your people are there in the room or here in the room together, but us being spread apart, O oh Lord, that same feeling, that same energy seems to be sapped out. So, Lord, help us, help this moment not just be like any other day. Lord, help this sermon not to, to be more than just getting words off of a paper and into a microphone and out into a people. Lord, we, I pray, Father, that your word goes forth powerfully that it reaches far beyond that my voice can actually reach into the hearts, into the souls, affecting everything that we say and we do and we think. Oh Lord, we need you now. We need you now, oh Lord. We need your greatness. We need your glory. We need your majesty. We need your peace, oh Lord, to be with us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we are in Daniel chapter 4. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar has had another terrifying dream at this point. He dreamed of this great, large tree that became strong. It grew high and became very strong. I don't know if you've ever seen a sequoia tree or a redwood tree, if, you've, if you have, you know how massive those trees are. They can reach heights of 200 feet or more. And it would take five or six or seven, depending on how big one is, it would take a number of us to wrap our arms around the trunk of the tree. It's a massive tree which roots go deep. And that's the picture we have here, something even much larger. Because the text says that the whole world could see this tree.
But the dream stopped there. Nebuchadnezzar would have dreamt, dreamt very peacefully and slept very peacefully. But it's what, it what happened next that alarmed him. This divine creature called a watcher, or the text says even a holy one, comes down from heaven and with a loud shout gives a command to cut the tree down and to trim away all its branches. Only a stump was to be left with its roots in the ground, and this was to be a thorough job. Hack off the trees, hack off the branches, leave it stripped, the fruit scattered, and the wild, and wild beasts and birds flee. A total undoing of this tree, but only leaving a small stump. So what does the king do? He's done what he's done before. He gives a command. This is his way of being in control over the situation. He gives a command. He calls all of the highest officials in the land. Again, we've heard this theme. It's the same pattern. Nebuchadnezzar has a problem. He gives a command and he calls in all the educated ones, all the smart ones, all of the wise ones, all of the powerful ones with one agenda, interpret this dream. It'd be something akin to the president now calling a congressional meeting and saying, you people who have been hired by the people to solve problems, solve this problem. It's in the job description. And yet again, the same thing happens. These men are unable to interpret this dream. It was a futile effort, why? Because there's actually no power in Babylon. There's no real power, they had no real power. And that's really our first lesson here. As I said in our, in our, in our introduction, only God is great. And there are really two lessons here in this text that will help us understand that that drive this point home, that only God is great. In this first lesson we already jumped into, that God humbles those who walk in pride. And the first people we see that walk in pride, we've seen over and over and over again, is Nebuchadnezzar and his officials. Nebuchadnezzar gives a command to come and solve this problem. And yet they can't. God humbles those who walk in pride. Well, let's, let's dissect this a little more. Looking at other parts of the text as well. First, to this point of God humbles those who walk in pride, we first see earlier in our text that there's the utter disruption of King Nebuchadnezzar and his ease. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is in his chambers, sleeping, at peace, Things are under control, and, what, and all it takes is God to seep in and cause him to be restless with this prophetic dream. I mean, think about it. How many military battles has, this, has Nebuchadnezzar won since Daniel chapter 1? How many laws has he enacted? in order to enshrine his legacy in stone. Who could defy this king? Who could enter into his chambers and cause the king to be uneased? 
We're only God. The very setting of this dream is very instructive. Nebuchadnezzar claims that he was at he claims that he was at ease and he was prospering. Then this dream frightened him, and the visions of his head terrified him. Oh, how easily peace can be shattered at the stroke of Yahweh's hand. It's all it took. It's all it took. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not just a person we are to look at and say, ah, look how prideful Nebuchadnezzar is. You and I are like Nebuchadnezzar clones, wanting to be the captain of our own ship, the the director of our own show the leader of our own lives, the center of our own universe. Recall your salvation. What did it take for God to break your heart? What did it take for God to open your eyes? Was it not his his word that opened your eyes and caused a little uneasiness? Your life may have been something akin to Nebuchadnezzar, prospering and at ease. And a word from God came to your heart. And that's all it took was a stroke of Yahweh's hand. So we see the utter disruption of the king's ease. Now we see that, secondly, the utter failure of the Babylonian religion. A little side note, every person, every culture has its, has its religion. The question is not, do you worship? But really, what do you worship? And as someone once put it, speaking of Babylon, there is no light there. All the brew of paganism leads into a tragic cul-de-sac. Dead end. Here we have these men, these, these outstanding politicians, these outstanding magicians, these men who come from, with the highest pedigree, attended possibly the highest and the best of the Babylonian education system. And yet they are unable to fulfill their job description. Why? Because there's no light in Babylon. An illustration will help bring this point home. I once heard of a story of a youth pastor who one day was asked by one of his students if he could meet up over coffee, something all pastors love to do. The day came and the youth pastor and student met. After several minutes of small talk, the student asked the pastor this question. I've been wrestling with a word you've used or a term you've used lately. It's been troubling me. Here's the question. What is justification? To which the pastor responded, you know, I don't know. You know, I don't know. How absurd and how humiliating. Ought a pastor know his theology? Likewise, ought these pagan theologians know theirs? Now, certainly, in regard to the pastor, this is simply a lack of study. But in regard to the pagan theologians, it's simply a lack of light. Their gods are no gods at all. Their view of reality is skewed, as Paul puts a concern in the world, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelieving. 
that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So what, what is the problem here? Well, it's the same problem of every unbeliever. And not only was it an ancient Babylonian problem, it's a 2021 American worldwide problem. Minds are darkened. Hearts are hardened. The problem with the godless culture is that they do not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And that is the problem from which all other problems flow. And one of the manifestations of this this problem, and one might say the central problem, is the issue of pride. Wasn't that possibly Adam and Eve's problem? That they found them, they thought that they could determine what is right and what is wrong by defying God's law? And what is pride? It is simply this me first and everything else second. And it is pride, if we're honest, that keeps you and me from submitting to the Lordship of Christ. How readily we receive him as Savior and how hard it is for us to receive him and worship him and submit to him as Lord. That he has the claim to your life. Where it goes and how it ends. Now a question should arise. How is it that these Babylonian magicians have, haven't got it yet? This is what, the second or third time they've been out-dueled, out-matched by this little man, Daniel? Hasn't Daniel shown how inept their theology was? They have seen Daniel time and time again bring in the light of Yahweh's word with precision Grace and clarity. Why haven't they submitted to Yahweh yet? Again, pride. These people need to be humbled. They need to be brought low in order for them to finally look up. Another illustration may bring this point home of of pride. An English writer by the name of Julian Barnes, who wrote this book, Nothing to be Frightened of. It's a book about his musings of what it means to die. And it starts off with one of the most memorable lines in literature. It says this, very first sentence, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Soon after, in that same chapter, he explains his move from Christianity to atheism. And it's whittled down to this. Listen to how unprofound this is. What brought this individual to atheism. He couldn't bear the thought that God would be so concerned about one of his little private sins so as to condemn him to hell. How prideful is that? As Proverbs 16, 18 declares, pride comes before a fall. Such was true of the Babylonians' greatest men. Such is true of Julian Barnes, and such is true of you and me. If men and women are going to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, like that mighty tree in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we need to be chopped down to stump size. 
God humbles those who walk in pride. Not only do we see the utter disruption of the king's ease and the utter failure of the Babylonian religion, we also see, and here's an interesting turn in the text, Yahweh's unrestricted kindness. Did you notice in our text? Whenever the king's, men, whenever the king's greatest men couldn't interpret this dream, who comes in? Daniel. And Daniel is able to parse out exactly what this text, what this dream prophecy means. Daniel is God's gift to the pagan king. He's a conduit of light in the midst of his darkness and fears. Daniel is the kindness of God to Nebuchadnezzar in giving him truth and clarity in his dilemma. Daniel also models a beautiful combination of grace and truth. Daniel doesn't just jump for joy at the thought of Nebuchadnezzar's downfall. How easy is that? He hears a dream and is like, oh, yes, finally, justice. No, Daniel, it breaks his heart. What disturbed the king disturbed Daniel as well. See, Daniel doesn't fear for his own life, but for the judgment coming to the king. He takes no pleasure in the king's downfall. But yet he does not hold back from speaking the truth plainly. Daniel also offers counsel to the king. Even though Nebuchadnezzar didn't ask for counsel, but here's Daniel, Yahweh's grace to the king. And he is at his prophetic best. Listen to what he says in verse 27. Therefore, O king, here's the counsel. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. And here's the call. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there be a prolonging of your prosperity. Do you see the grace there? Do you see the kindness there? that Daniel doesn't leave Nebuchadnezzar without light, without hope. God doesn't leave Nebuchadnezzar strictly with judgment. But he calls him to repent. And friends, whether you are a Christian or you're not a Christian, the call to repentance is a call to grace. It's a call to a wholeness of life. God doesn't, doesn't leave us with the wrath of God is going to fall upon you if you don't repent. It's also come to me to be saved from that wrath. It's come to me to find life and to find life abundantly. It's come to me to, to find what life is really all about. Daniel here, though, isn't sketching out a personal plan of salvation for the king. But he's, all, he's giving a sample of vocational repentance. Now, I know a question has often gone around. Um, you may have thought about it as you've been reading this text yourself. Is Nebuchadnezzar becoming a Christian in this text? Is he becoming, is he saved? Does God save him? And I believe if we focus on that, we're focusing on really the wrong thing. The text never tells us whether or not Nebuchadnezzar was saved or not. What we do know is that he was humbled. We do know that he was humbled. 
He calls the king to a vocational repentance. Up to this point, Nebuchadnezzar has been a narcissistic, self-indulgent, oppressive tyrant. And Daniel's advice to him is to repent. He's calling his leader, the leader of the world at that point, to repent by doing righteousness, which means in this case from such unjust practices as being oppressive to the poor. And this repentance would bring relief and show favor to those subjects in his kingdom who found themselves at the bottom of life's pile. God is calling Nebuchadnezzar to repent. What a grace and what a high privilege. Look, look, look what God has given him up to this point. A revelation, the dream plus the interpretation, admonition, the call to repentance, and then an opportunity to repent. A whole year before the judgment fell on Nebuchadnezzar. It's a huge gift when the God of heaven clearly makes known his word, even his severe word. It comes to you through the pastors of this church. Through the preached word, it's a mercy to you. It's a mercy to the world. That God would not keep the world in the dark about his will and his ways. That he would not keep the world in the dark about how to be saved from their sins and be reconciled to God. That's an unfathomable mercy. What does Paul say about this unrestricted grace? But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks. Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. He says elsewhere, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And here's the appeal. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's a message that goes out to the whole world. It's unrestricted, unhindered. It's unbiased. And here it reaches even the king's heart, this tyrant. Daniel or any of his friends at that point couldn't have stormed into the, to the king's chamber and say, King, you must repent. If they'd have done that, they would have had their heads lopped off. But God is everywhere. His grace is unhindered. It cannot be restricted. Another way God humbles those who walk in pride is, like we said, is through his kind, goodness and kindness. Up to this point, that's what we've seen. And Paul says, says it also. Or do you think lightly of the richness of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance? This is goodness and his kindness also that leads you to repentance. The moment Daniel came into the king's chambers, God's goodness and kindness came in with him. The moment you walk through these doors or you click on a Zoom, you chime into the sermons, 
you are meeting the goodness and the kindness of God. And that is meant to lead you to repentance. So we have seen the utter disruption of the king's ease and Babylon's utter failure of religion and Yahweh's unrestricted kindness. We also see the unmitigated earthly rule of Yahweh. This is another way to put it. This is Yahweh's concrete sovereignty. Notice verse 25. Near the end of verse 25. Until you recognize... what is. Question, what is the point of this judgment? What's the point of this prophecy? What's the point of the interpretation? Until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the kingdom of men and bestows it on whomever he wishes. That's the point. As a matter of fact, it's said three, if not four times in Daniel chapter 4. It's said numerous of times in numerous different ways all throughout Daniel. This is the point. Until you recognize that God doesn't just rule up there, but he rules down here. Notice verse 17. It's, it's, a, it's a repetition of verse 25. And it does not depict a rule that is to come, but one that operates even now. Do you doubt that God rules now, that Christ rules even now? It's quite easy to turn on the news, isn't it? It's quite easy to even look at your own heart or look at your own life and say, and not even give a thought that King Jesus rules now. Or you may give it much thought and you may question if he rules now. It's not uncommon for the saints to question that, to wonder that. As Psalm 73, read the text, the saint there is wrestling over the same thing Daniel wrestles over. How is it that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And read through that text, you'll see he wrestles with God there. Almost questioning, is God in control? But the point the book of Daniel is he wants us to know that yes God is going to rule in the future but he also rules now right here in the heart of Babylon right here in the middle of exile King Jesus rules even now even there When you look at verse 17, and even verse 25, one another thing that it teaches us is that we should never be overly impressed with human governments, nor awed by human rulers. These are simply interim arrangements that God appoints to fill in space until the power and glory of Jesus' kingdom comes. As one person puts it, or has put it, all earthly powers, whatever form of government they take on, all earthly powers are simply this, God's lackeys who have tenure at his pleasure. 
who have tenure at his pleasure. So that's our first lesson. God humbles those who walk in pride. And our second, not only does he humble those who walk in pride, those he humbles, he humbles us to show us mercy. To show us mercy. Here we have a story in our text this morning that sabotages the Babylonian pagan, pagan kingship theology. We've seen throughout the text, Nebuchadnezzar fancies himself a god. And this is taking a shot at that theology. Taking a shot at all theologies, really, that don't point to the one true God. And just like we all are religious, we all are theologians. Believe it or not, you have something to say. You, have, you believe something about God. Both in your outward confession, but in your practical way you live. Taking a shot directly at that. It's a dig at all the false claims of the Babylonian religion. It's a dig at, at all false religions. It's a dig at our own pitiful attempts to make ourselves the center. Now notice in our text, a whole year has passed since Daniel has interpreted the king's dream. A whole year. A whole year, a full rotation around the sun, 12 months, 52 weeks, 365 days, 8,760 hours, 525,600 minutes, 31,536 seconds. All of which Nebuchadnezzar never repents. A whole year. Why did God wait a whole here to humble the king. I hope, you, I hope you ask that question. I think we're supposed to ask that question when we come to this text. Why would he wait a whole year? Wasn't the call to, rep- call to repentance one of the stipulations is to do justice to the poor for a whole year? Nebuchadnezzar says, No. Wouldn't it have been just for God to cut him down the size right then and right there? Wouldn't it have been just for God to take out the king? Yes, it would make for a wonderful movie. But it would make for terrible theology at least the theology of the Bible. You see, mercy loves delays. Mercy loves delays. This whole year on which God waits, God is patiently enduring Nebuchadnezzar. He is constantly being good to Nebuchadnezzar. All the while calling Nebuchadnezzar to repent. Mercy loves delays. I mean, aren't you glad that your very first outward sin, God didn't cut you down to size? Aren't you glad that God has patiently bared your sins? For those of you who didn't grow up Christian, aren't you glad that he waited umpteenth years, how many years it was, for him 
to finally break your heart and you lift up your eyes and you see the glory of Jesus and you say yes to him finally? All those years if you say no to Jesus, mercy loves delays. But yet, Nebuchadnezzar persists, doesn't he? One day he's out looking at all of his accomplishments. Oh, we, we've done that. We may not have a kingdom to look over, but we, we, we often Sorry. Look at, look at everything that I have accomplished with my hand, and look how this demonstrates my glory and my majesty, so says Nebuchadnezzar. And then what happens? Right at that moment, as he is voicing and thinking of his accomplishments, when his head is swelled big and his heart and chest is puffed out, right then and right there, a voice from heaven comes. Now, that's a, that's a repeated phrase here in this text from heaven, from heaven, from heaven. Nebuchadnezzar is going to go on to say that God rules and reigns in heaven, the God of heaven. What is the point of, rep, of emphasizing heaven? It is a place of ultimate and true rule, a place that can be untouched, a place that's unmatched. And the New Testament picks up on this also. Read Ephesians. Where do our blessings rest? They're there in the heavenly places. Where is the Christian now? Paul can say the Christian has been raised with Christ. Not only has he died, he's been raised, but he is seated with him in the heavenly places. Peter can say that your salvation is kept and guarded in heaven. It's the place of ultimate rule, untouched and unmatched. Nebuchadnezzar can puff his chest all he wants, but all it takes is heaven to veto. And everything changes. And that's what happens. He tells the, the, the angel, the Holy One, this, this voice from heaven tells Nebuchadnezzar that now the prophecy is fulfilled. Now the prophecy is fulfilled. And Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. He loses his mind. He becomes something akin to a wild beast for a period of seven periods. Not sure how long that is, but quite some time. He lost his senses. That mighty tree has been chopped down. That mighty tree has been chopped down. So, what's the mercy? Where's the mercy? Up to this point, we've seen a prideful, narcissistic king being chopped down to size. Driven off from his kingdom, feasting on grass, like a wild animal. Where's the mercy? Well, the mercy is right there in verse 32. Until, notice, until 
you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the kingdoms of mankind. The mercy is implied in the conjunction. It won't be until the seven periods of time have passed that he will be restored. There's a promise there that he will be restored. And then this is what I love about God's word. The text turns it up a notch and presses the fast forward button. We don't linger for those seven periods of time waiting for the next act. We don't sit there. We don't linger. They jump straight to the mercy. And I'm, I, I often think and I believe that that is a mercy in of itself for those of us who sit on this side of history. That we don't linger right there in the mess, but we see quickly how God acts and how God responds. We see his mercy and we see his love quickly. Notice the way the king puts the matter in verse 34. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Lord. Excuse me, I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. Again, note the first and, and then its logical conclusion. Reason returned, and from that, what does he do with that reason? He blesses and praises God. His reason return, and the first thing he does in his reasonable mind is to bless Yahweh. That's what sane people do. They offer adoration and thanksgiving and praise to the God of heaven. Truly rational people talk like this. They confess the supremacy of the king of heaven. Again, consider the time that you came to know the Lord. Did you not see your sins as heinous? Did you not mourn those sins which placed them on the cross? Did you not at the same time see that he was on the cross for you because of your sins? And wasn't this a strange humbling? Strange in that you saw how far you had fallen short of his glory. Yet at the same time, you heard his glorious call, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And at once you, you came to him, you had faith in him, and you, and you repented, and you heard him say to that, Come now, let us reason together. Say, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they should be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And yet you came to him at once, humbling yourself and confessing your sins. Then blessed the Lord, saying, I acknowledge my sin. To you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my sin. And you forgave the iniquity of my sins. And then you can say, along with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Don't despise this mercy. That was the most reasonable moment in your life. The most sane moment in your life. That you can say those words after realizing that you have sinned against God. That you saw your sin, but you saw his grace at the same time. That is a mercy.
Don't despise it. When was the last time you thanked God for this mercy? Let me close with this final illustration. The inauguration of January 20th, 1969 had been a full day for the Nixon family. They were back at the White House after Mr. Nixon had taken the oath of office and before they toured the various inaugural balls that evening. It was after dark when Pat Nixon, Richard Nixon's wife, phoned the White House chef. She indicated that most of the family would like steak in the upstairs dining room and then added that she herself would only like a bowl of cottage cheese in her bedroom. A bowl of cottage cheese in her bedroom. That threw the kitchen into a frenzy. They had all the prime ribs and fillets you could imagine. But they didn't have an ounce of cottage cheese. Not an ounce. Imagine, imagine that. Here is the, here's the, the first lady and the president and all them wanting this particular thing and they are like, we can't say no. So the head butler in the White House got in a limousine and sped around Washington until he found an open store with a supply of cottage cheese. Now, what is the point of me telling that story? It would be easy to see this as a small matter. But the supply of cheese is representative here. Likewise, it would be woefully easy to ignore the common cottage cheese level matters of life. But we must not do so when they are gifts from the Most High God. And one of those gifts is that he humbles you to bless you. He humbles you to bless you. Amen.